Hey, welcome to Music is More, a podcast that explores the universal language of music in greater depth in order to discover the meanings, messages, and lessons beneath the surface. If you're looking for a fun review and analysis of a wide variety of music, this is the pod for you. Each week, we'll look at an album of our choice, give it a review, and then take a deep dive into the themes that album explores, providing social commentary along the way. Stay tuned if you agree that music is more. Music is more than the notes. Music is more than syncopation. Music is more than sound. Music is more than passion. Music is more than a moment. Music is more than words. Music is more than ideas. Music is more than what sounds in my interpretation. Music is more. Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of the Music Is More podcast. I'm your host Ayana, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about Stromae's recent album, Multitude. I'm really excited, and if you are interested in an in-depth album review, followed by another in-depth discussion <laughs> of some of the themes across the album, then feel free to stick around. So I'm really excited about this episode because this will be the first time that I cover a an artist or an album that is done in a foreign language to me. Um, Stromae's Multitude is in French. Stromae, a Belgian artist um, who produces French work. We love to see it or work in the French language. And he's also got, you know, an interesting backstory in that he has lived in several places across Europe. Um, and so he's multicultural in that way. The reason that I wanted to do this album in particular is because it's been eight years since he has produced any um, full-length albums and he's basically been like on an extended hiatus due to his like life journeys and different things like he was sick with malaria for a while all kinds of things and so it's really uh, fortuitous you know that he's made it through all of those adversities and is constantly still continuing to produce music and I was really curious about what this album was going to sound like. Um, I was introduced to his albums and his music uh, like a lot of American people through French class <laughs> and some of my beginning French courses and uh, as you like progress in your French language studies there's less about like pop culture more about political science and stuff at least for me but his music has always been something that I, I enjoyed. I enjoyed his last album. He's just like really great as an artist. So I also think it goes hand in hand with the premise of this whole entire podcast. The idea that music is more that oftentimes it transcends language and culture um, and can increase your perspective just listening to music outside of your own countries. So that's what we're going to cover it today and I'm looking forward to it and I'm excited about it. I love Stromae and I loved this album. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Before we do the actual album review, just a couple stats on the album. It was released March 4th, 2022. Um, It's got 12 songs, 35 minutes and 46 seconds of listening time. They're all in French and so 
when I get into my deeper dive um, and I talk a little bit more about the individual songs and stuff, you're going to hear me refer to different stuff that he said, like in French, but I'm also, you know, an English speaker natively. So, well, I'll, I'll always um, return to English, you know, to further explain it and expand upon my thoughts. Uh, but just so you can be aware uh and yeah this is his first album in eight years so about this album he said a couple different things in his like triumphant return to music uh he was looking to explore different cultures different cultural sounds and find different grooves is what he called them in a a statement that he made about the album um and so throughout the album you can see that he put a lot of thought into the instruments into um, you know, the into the soundscapes that he was attempting to create. And really, I before without saying too much before getting into the album review, it went really well for me <laughs> as a listener. I very much enjoyed it. I could very much see that. And I think he did a great job in that in that way. So the album review um, about this album, I want to say a couple different things definitely let's start with the instrumental i have a little bit less to say about the actual subject matter still a lot to say but a little bit less because i am not a native french speakers and so the like lyrical impact upon first listen is a little bit shaky for me nevertheless google translate is my friend and there's nothing that the internet can't tell me and so i've got a good idea of what he was saying it's just not like in the same way that the french a native French speaker might. So first, the sounds on this album. Excellent. Top tier. Um, The instrumentals on each song were near perfect. And I say that and I, and let me clarify, I'm not saying that I just loved every single instrumental, but what I do, what I do think is that a lot of thought, a lot of work, a lot of effort has been put into choosing what instruments are going to be played when dynamic versatility if you would um it was well produced all of that like this is one of those albums you have to sit down and really like listen to with some good headphones because all the choices here were thought out and well planned so i love that i also think there's a big there's there's value in introducing different cultural sounds that you wouldn't always hear. Like a lot of the times in American music, I can pick out the instruments being played because I'm familiar with them here. It required a little bit more digging for me to be like, oh, he's using this instrument. Oh, is that a is that a harpsichord? Is that <laughs> what is that? Is that an organ? Is Are those bubbles in the background? Like there was really some interesting instrumental choices and there's value in finding these cultural instruments that not everyone around the world have had a chance to listen to in like their popular music and introducing them on a large scale because they're impactful and they're beautiful within the soundscape and and it piques people's interest I think when you're listening to that so he's also doing that kind of service that kind of cultural service in widening people's perspectives in terms of music now let's also talk about uh, his vocals on it. Strome is somewhere in between a singer and a rapper. We love to see it. Um, <laughs> uh, he does a lot of kind of like spoken word 
things that are similar to spoken word um, in his songs. And he also is not afraid to sing um, and croon. And I also love the additional like vocalizations. He'll do um, he'll do like a choir kind of feeling. So his voice on this great. Um, and there aren't any features on this album. No big deal, you know. But despite there not being any features, there's still a great level of versatility in the things that he was doing in terms of his voice to to switch it up. And he um, also embodied different perspectives just by himself. So in like changing the point of view of his lyrics, it's like adding another voice. So I think that was also very smart and genius and something that people don't usually do, like play both roles in in a song if they want another perspective they'll add a featuring artist if they want the woman's perspective or the wife's perspective or if they're a lady and they want the husband's perspective they'll go and find a featuring artist to do that for them but he has played every single part in this um album and it introduced different perspectives just by himself and by changing the perspective of the lyrics so very effective and neat very industrious you know (laughs) content wise it's not it's not just one theme across the board, right? It's a bunch of little themes about, you know, his human condition. And that is still amazing. And he is, there wasn't any one song that I felt was like superficial or a throwaway song. I felt all of them were really well thought out, planned out, had a good message, had something to say. And I think that's hard to do sometimes. Especially when you're talking about like 12 songs, 12 songs with these um, really unique perspectives with uh, these important things that they're trying to construe in, in their in, in the song or whatever. And yes, yeah, so he kind of runs the gamut, but I don't think he did it in a way that it limited him him, you know, sometimes less is more. But in this in this case, more was more. <laughs> more was more so it was great to see that as well like i said i'm not a native french speaker i'm kind of like intermediate french level <laughs> intermediate french level and so there's things that i got but there's also plenty of things that i didn't get upon first listen and so i've looked at the lyrics poured over them put them in google translate to make sure i'm getting the gist of it um and yeah so now let's talk about like songs individually. I'm going to try and be quick. I am never really quick, but what are you going to do? So the first song on this album is called In Vancu, uh, which is um, translated into English, Undefeated. Uh, an awesome, excellent introduction to the album. It's wildly strong and triumphant in tone. The dynamics on it are fantastic. So... This is also a great introduction because it's um, dem- demonstrative of what I talked about earlier in that it includes some instruments that are unfamiliar to my ear. So some of the strings uh, and some of the instruments are familiar, but some of them aren't. And I like, can't put a name to some of them, especially like in that in the end with the instrumental break that's happening near the end um, where you can hear it a little bit more clearly. But nevertheless, it's still fun. It makes for a more interesting and complex listen. And 
uh, it underlines, you know, what this what this album is going to be about. This exploration of these different sounds, but also this kind of triumphant feeling. And in the lyrics, he's talking about how he's um, come out uh, on the other side of his sickness and his like life's adversities to still be alive. And he says, you know, toujours invaincu, right? Always undefeated, still undefeated, right? Very good message and then amazing instrumentation in the back to kind of um, emphasize that. The second song off this album, Sante, is familiar to me because it was released as one of the singles. Um, and I think I saw, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I saw it on either like Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel. I cannot remember, but he did it like live, which was awesome. He's so great live as well. Um, so that's fantastic. And in the song, he's kind of talking about, um, those people who occupy jobs that are never celebrated and who like don't have the time to celebrate themselves. And he's doing that celebration in the song. I found that to be quite admirable of him. Um, the levity of the song kind of contrasts the serious issue at hand of these people who are working these thankless jobs and everything. But it just um, leans into it kind of. And it's like, yes, you are great. You are fantastic. And I think that those people would listen to the song and feel a sort of freedom, a sort of levity, a sort of bounciness. So it works in both ways, right? Another thing about Sante is that I found the instrumental to be quite uh, interesting and just a little bit off kilter. You can tell that there's like Latin American influences there, maybe Spanish influences there. Uh, but even then, it's done just in just in an in off kilter enough way that it really pulls your ear, right? He made some decisions in terms of like timing that um, that make it just just that little bit more of like himself, his own brand, and it makes it for an in, a more interesting listen. Like this kind of like subtle delay. A subtle delay in um, the instrumental around the chorus. It, it's like noticeable. It like pulls your ear. It's interesting. All that stuff. So that's just one more note on Sante. We'll go ahead and move on. La Solicitude um, is another is a third song off of the album, and it's talking about the conundrum that exists when you are both lonely and alone, and you don't want to be lonely and alone, but you also don't want to be in a couple and be responsible to another person in a couple. Um, so that's in and of itself. The subject matter is really interesting in that way. Um, I also think that there are multiple interpretations. Like I'm thinking about it in a romantic relationship kind of way, but it could also be interpreted as his relationship with music and wanting to pursue music, but not be like held responsible and on like anyone's deadline or anything. So Potentially, there's more more than one interpretation of the lyrics. Um, on top of that, aside from like the um, subject matter of this song, uh, the instrumentation is fantastic. I love a marimba. I do. And I think that I hear a marimba here, so in love with that. Then whatever string instrument that they're using on the last verse and chorus, I can't name it. I'm going to go find it after this podcast. I can't name it right now, but it's gorgeous somewhat like heart-wrenching you know um adds a completely different and amazing layer to the music 
Um, and his voice changes significantly, like in this song, as he's speaking um, or singing or whatever you want to call it in, <laughs> in this song. It's just that hint, like it's just a little bit darker in tone and in, in intonation. So it just makes it for, it's just like a, a fun little diversion after the first two songs. You know, I like it a lot. I like La, la Solicitude. The fourth song off of this album, Fee, Fils de Joy. I want to say joy. It's not joy. Fee de Joie. I'm going to go with that one. A Girl of Joy. Also, uh, is is kind of like it's um it's um a euphemism for a prostitute, right? Uh, and this song is um, talking about the practice of prostitution, uh, like across Europe in Belgium, where Stromae is from. Prostitution is illegal, or at least decriminalized. I can't remember, but pimping in Belgium is illegal, um, and in France. The practice of both is illegal. Um, and so it's kind of like a reflection upon, you know, why that is, if that should continue. And in the song, he um, shows different perspectives uh, on the issue. Um, he embodies like people who are engaged with the issue uh, from like a police officer to the like um, gentleman who is paying the lady in question for sex and even like um the son of the sex worker. Um, and so in doing that, he, he takes a look at it through several sides, like several dimensions. Um, and I think the message here is that there are multiple, multiple dimensions and that the person who might be engaging in sex work is a multidimensional person worthy of like respect and dignity uh, and is many things and is not just a sex worker and so is deserving of rights in the same way that any person would be. So some political commentary there, you know, for your ears. Um, And on top of that, the instrumental on this is wild. (laughs) There's like popping bubbles as part of the instrumental. Um, I think like a harpsichord is happening, kind of medieval in nature. So there's a bunch of different, there's a bunch of different things here. Um, and, you know, maybe that says something about, like, you know, the subject matter as well. But it's just something of note when I was listening to that, that particular song. Uh, we go further. L'enfer. Uh, hell. It translates into hell. But um, this song is even more sensitive than the song before. You know, who would have thought? Um, because this song is covering suicide. And suicidal thoughts. And Strome himself is confessing to having had suicidal thoughts and, and experiencing suicidal ideation. Um, so in that way, completely um, different, right? It's kind of like new because this is often a taboo subject. You don't hear it sung about a lot, Um Yes, there's, there's like a tabooness to it all. Um, but I think he's doing the Lord's work in, in voicing his own uh, struggles with it and saying his own thoughts uh, about it. Um, and it can serve as um, a catharsis, 
you know, to be able to say what is on his mind and what he's dealt with in terms of mental health struggling and mental health struggles. Um, on top of that, the instrumental, wild. <laughs> the melody, wild. The warp synth makes the point, right? It helps to emphasize the point. The chorus in which they're kind of like yelling and yelling, but singing as well, you know, demonstrative of probably the voices in his head, you know, the, the turmoil that he's going through as he's experiencing these um, negative thoughts and everything. So it's one of my favorites on the album, um, just because I think it's, it's definitely uh, a really pure um, manifestation of like what he was going through at any certain time. Secure de Bonheur is the sixth track off of Multitude. And uh, it's really also neat because, again, it's saying the things that are not often said in terms of popular music. And for this song, um, Secure du Bonheur means it's only happiness. And he's talking about the um, trials and tribulations of parenthood. And he's saying, you know, it's only happiness, but what he's actually describing in terms of the lyrics is not happiness. And also his tone when he's singing this song uh, also highlights the fact that it's not only happiness. Um, and all of that juxtaposed with a really fun, syncopated instrumental um, is kind of, it's, it's funny, you know, it's ironic. <laughs> it makes you laugh a little bit because he's saying it's only happiness. They poop everywhere. They're going to grow up to hate you. They ruin their mother's body. She's resentful. We always had to. <laughs> he's saying all these different things in terms of the lyrics. Um, but he's then following it up with, look, it's only happiness. <laughs> so it makes you laugh. Um, and this was a fun, um, a fun song as well. Um, next, after that, we have Pa Fremont which is not really. Um, and Pavement is kind of about romantic relationships, I think, in terms of he's talking about a relationship in which there are different perspectives and that they're not really together for love, but for more for like th their image and making other people jealous. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people experience this in romantic relationships when after... You're not really into the person. You're like, let's stay together because look, everyone thinks we're so happy. Um, and he explores that in a multitude of different perspectives, including like the two different partners with two different perspectives and uh, the people who look at their relationship from outside who like speculate about if they're together for good or not, <laughs> if they're together for the right reasons or not. On this song, they use this kind of like, Woodwind. I want to call it a flute. I know it's not a flute. It might be a flute, like a distorted flute, but it's some kind of woodwind instrument. And it's so much fun because it sounds a little bit like somebody like yelling, <laughs> like a human voice. But I, I think it's an instrument. Um, and the like melody is fun. And it's kind of like, um, I don't know, it's, it's like uh, titillating, kind of like dramatic. I don't know. I don't have the words for it, but it's a fun listen. Um, so I like Pavrimon as well. He's so dramatic, and I love that for him. <laughs> the next song on the album, Rie, 
and Rie translates to laugh. I love this song. It's one of my favorites on the album. Um, I think the instrumental is fantastic. Um, the instrumental is fantastic. The beat is so much fun. Um, his singing on it, his voice, his vocals on it, I love. Um, it's kind of got like a tropical feel, if you would. I don't know if that makes sense, but I would play it like at a resort, <laughs> at a resort island. It's like chill and fun in that way. And then on top of that, the things he's talking about, like this, these different levels of desire and these different levels of dreams, um, he's you know expressing dreams and aspirations through the perspective of different people. At the highest end, there's someone who's like wishing for unbelievable wealth and fame and success. And then at the end, we see someone who is like, I'm just wishing that I can have like all of my meals, you know, and all of my basic needs met each day. Um, and I, I'm so focused on that that I can't even dream of more. So it's a charged kind of song um, and an important kind of topic, right? This inequality. I think it's also like, you know, a reflection on wealth inequality and everything. Uh, but in that way, the the actual subject matter is kind of poignant. But uh, the beat is so much fun. <laughs> and he's like laugh because it's kind of absurd. This difference in desire and this, this difference in need. Um, so you just have to laugh at it uh, as we sing along to this awesome like beat and everything. But yeah, I like this song a lot. A, a good combination of like a conscious subject matter and a good song, like a fun song that I would listen to more than once. The ninth song on this album is Mon Amour. And at first I thought this was going to be a very romantic song. It sounds like it in terms of the instrumental. It's like a classic romantic uh, instrumental happening. But when he starts talking <laughs> and when he starts singing, my mind completely changed because it is not that romantic at all. <laughs> at first I thought he had like a uh, uh, La Vion Rose, you know, on his hands. But what he's talking about is not very lovely in that way. So <laughs> it's actually kind of the breakdown of relationship throughout the progression of the song. Um, and like he admits or the person in the song admits to having had like an affair and everything and being unable to do his own laundry all uh, all in one. <laughs> all in the progression. Right. Um, so it's kind of funny in that way. It's kind of funny. After that, we get to Déclaration, uh, another really interesting sound space. I say that about almost all of them, but it's because it's true. Um, there's a lot of like synth on Déclaration, ephemeral almost, you know, uh, but still optimistic because the subject matter is about like feminism versus misogyny and uh, the difference in treatment for women than men. Um, so there, it's very, uh, some more political, social commentary as well, as well. I also felt like the closing um, on this track was absolutely amazing. Um, and yeah, like, go ahead, Stromae, tell them what it is, you know, tell them what it is. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> then the 11th track, Mauvaise Journée, 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 Journée. Journée, mauvais journée, which translates into bad day. 
And of course, it is about a bad day in which, you know, you're suffering through like negative thoughts, uh, depression, all kinds of things. Um, and the soundscape really leans to that in a, a way that I don't think it it wasn't. I don't I don't think any of the instrumentals before this were notably like sad or irritated or anything, even L'Enfer, you know, was still really strong. Um, but this one, I felt uh, the like the horns, the instrumental was also melancholy um, and irritable, you know, in the same way that he is expressing himself to be. Um, so just a note. And again, it's 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 on the cutting edge of music because no one's talking about their bad day. Some people talk about their bad day, but on a large scale, music is made to make other people feel like happy. In this way, he is expressing things that are often taboo or unspoken of. And in doing so, probably provides himself a catharsis and provides other people who are having bad days um, an outlet. So great job on that. Um, the final song on this album, Bon Jeune. Bon Jeune. Bon Jeune. Which translates into good, good day. <laughs> good day. And in that way, it is a completely, it's, it's the foil of the song right before it. Um, it's much happier. He is celebrating. He is uh, happy. He's free, bright, all of that um, on this day. And I love that it ends on this note because I think the entire album was optimistic, regardless of some of the heavier topics that it was covering. Um, and so this closeout to it does a great job of maintaining that optimism, pushing that optimism into you after you've listened to the ups and downs of his life, you know? Um, so I really enjoyed this album. They're doing some more like awesome singing in the background, like this informal chorus, this non-traditional chorus happening. It's syncopated. It's fun. And I want to sing along. Like, I, I love that. I love this into the album as well. So that is kind of a brief rundown. Um, we've done our album review and everything. So next up, we're going to do a deep dive into some of the themes of the album. Okay, welcome to the Music is More segment of the Music is More podcast, where we take it a step further. We take it a step further and we talk about some of the themes of the album um, and provide some commentary about those themes, you know, maybe I have a statement. I'm liable to talk about anything and everything, and I'm liable to say whatever is on my mind. Um, and so first, let's just brainstorm, you know, some of the overarching themes throughout the album. I spoke a little bit about it earlier in that it's kind of a recounting of his life, you know, in these past eight years, some of the things that he's seen, instances he's dealt with. But I think that there are some threads that uh, persist, you know, throughout the entirety of the album. So first, I think mental health discussions happen throughout this album, right? Um, talks about, you know, his suicidal ideation, depression, loneliness, um, different states of like mental health across, you know, across the album. So definitely that is a common thread. Then I think we also discuss at length 
different types of romantic relationships, some healthier than others. Um, you know, the the back and forth, the push and pull of like wanting to be in a romantic relationship and also not wanting to be those relationships that um, are fake or superficial and those relationships that ultimately fail. Um, so that's definitely within this album as well. Another thing he does throughout the album is uh, some political commentary, you know, commentary about uh, these kind of hot topics, <laughs> not hot topics, but the, this social political commentary he does in terms of talking a little bit about income and wealth inequality. He talks about feminism and misogyny. He talks about prostitution. So these kind of like political topics as well, he made a note of throughout the album. Um, and uh, yeah, all kinds of all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so those are some of the core themes that I felt uh, were recur reoccurring throughout the album. Uh, and I think today on the podcast, I want to dive in a little bit more to the political commentary and explore, you know, prostitution, feminism, and uh, wealth inequality. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's talk a little bit about some hot button political issues occurring in Europe, right? Um, and that's just going to be my umbrella for the things I'm going to discuss because they are a myriad, but they all are political issues that people in Europe are dealing with, are making commentary on, that Chomet himself felt strongly enough to create some songs about. So let's talk first about how he talks about um, these political issues. First, prostitution. The song I would point to for this one, and it's, you know, a relatively um, isolated incident of him talking about it, but nevertheless, Fille de Joie. Joie. Fille de Joie, right? The fourth song, um, its content is about prostitution. And um, he embodies um, a person who is buying the services of sex worker, uh, a person who is like a police officer, and a person who is a pimp, right? And in the, and those things he embodies in the verses, and then in the chorus, he is embodying uh, the son of the sex worker, right? And he's kind of, uh, throughout the song, to giving those different perspectives from those three people, and then also always returning to the perspective of the son who really humanizes his mother and says, you know, they blame you, but they also partake in your services. You know, they judge you, um, but who are they to judge? All kinds of stuff. So uh, that's how he talks about prostitution. So let's So let's talk a little bit more. And, you know, all of my analysis is, it returns to my my personal experience, right? So I'm talking about these issues that are hot button topics and issues, but my point of reference is always my own, which is centered in the United States. Um, so, so that's just like a disclaimer because that's where I'm going to return for my point of reference because it's what I know most. Anyway, so with the subject of prostitution, I think the big question in people's minds is, if it should be legal, if it should be decriminalized, if it should be regulated, all kinds of things, right? 
So that is where there is a ton of discussion. Um, why is sex work in and of itself demonized? I think it's got a lot to do with, you know, the patriarchy, um, misogyny and stuff like that. Uh, that says, you know, a woman should only be sexual in the ways that we deem appropriate um, and should not have, you know, autonomy and the ability to monetize their sexual being. Okay. So those, I think that point of view is archaic Um, and not even archaic because, you know, uh, as many sex workers will tell you, sex work is one of the most ancient forms of work, right? <laughs> one of the one of the most ancient professions. Um and so more than that, I think it's just really traditional. It's got a tint of religion and religious things, but I personally feel that religion has no place in government. Um so so there's that, right? So why wouldn't you legalize or at least decriminalize prostitution? You, would see, you will see that a lot of arguments against it have more to do with people's personal beliefs, their religious beliefs, than it does anything else, right? One could argue that prostitution is just a regular profession, uh, just like you go to work and go and sit in an office and maybe you're an accountant or whatever, um, a person might engage in sex for money in the same way. Uh, They're both uses of your body, of your intellect, of your time. Um, And yeah, of course, prostitution comes with its own risk, uh, which are unique to the profession, but I feel so does any other profession. And that uh, risk would be reduced if the work was decriminalized. So yeah, then you think to yourself, (laughs) <laughs> should it be regulated? Like, uh, wh- on what conditions would prostitution, you know, best be, like, what I'm searching for, What I and I think what a lot of people are searching for, is the way to um, have prostitution be a thing and sex work be a thing in the way that, in a way that um, mitigates the most risk, Right. As it is, illegal, when, when prostitution is illegal, I feel like it causes more harm than good because people are always going to do that, right? People are always going to engage in it. Um, and uh, yeah, like there's a market for it. Like if there was no demand for it and if no one was willing to do it, then it wouldn't exist, right? Or it would exist in, I think, in, a, in completely different numbers than it does now, Um but it does exist. People do want it, do want to participate in it. And so how to make that the safest that we that we can is the answer. You know, you legalize it and then uh, like it becomes like. Corporate, <laughs> you know, it becomes uh, like industrialized, kind of like, you know, streamlined in that way. I don't know if that's the best solution, because as we know, corporations will exploit you just as soon as, you know, individuals will, (laughs) if not more, capitalism, a demon, whatever. But um, then you think to yourself, if is, is no regulation of 
the right way, and I don't think that's right either. But I do think that there is a solution there um, for everyone to mitigate risk and to, you know, have it be uh, something that you're not jailed for. You know, there, there's, there, there's a compromise there, <laughs> I think, um, between letting everybody just do it willy-nilly and, you know, <laughs> and just do whatever they want without consequence and also, like, you know, making it like a government-owned corporation or anything like that. I don't know. There's, there's a place there. There's a solution there. There's, of course, the political way to look at prostitution, but along with that, there's the societal way to look at it as well. And I think society has a long way to go in terms of sex work and accepting it and, um, you know, not demonizing people who participate in it or um, stereotyping them or discriminating against them. So that's also work that I, th- I feel needs to be done. Uh, it's much more difficult to think about how to do societal work to destigmatize sex work. Um, social media, I think, has done a large part of it and like liberalizing people's minds in that way. Uh, because once you are confronted with the humanity, you know, of people who work in the sex industry, then it's hard to deny it again, right? <laughs> it's hard to just be like, lock all prostitutes up or anything like that. Once you've seen for yourself what that might look like. Um, so it's definitely about increasing access to information about how it is, what it means, you know, who is doing it, how they feel about it. Um, but that's another facet that I think has to be explored along with whatever people are looking for politically, you know, whatever action they're looking for politically as well. Moving on, Shrimi also talks a little bit about both feminism and misogyny, another kind of isolated incidents. What are you going to do? Uh, but still an incident. So we're going to take it. And that is the example I want to pull from where he discusses it is in the 10th song on the album, Declaration. And in it, he's talking about, you know, how people don't want women to wear pants. <laughs> it makes me laugh because it's so absurd. <laughs> because to think that there are um, people out there who are like, police, like, don't wear, don't wear pants. Who like, police women's sexuality. Who, um, you know, don't believe in women. And in equality for women. I think you're a bad person if you hate women. Oh, Oh, snap. Yeah, and that's what I have to say about it. But in declaration, in declaration, he is talking about, you know, the courage of women and uh, that, you know, change is coming because because it, it must and um, it will and it's inevitable. Uh, and like the 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 experience of women is often one that is not highlighted, right? A woman ha- goes through um, all kinds of things when they're like trying to give birth, when uh, they are the ones who have to take responsibility for contraception that might give them adverse health effects. He talks about endometriosis. He talks about uh, the wage gap, all kinds of things that are burdens upon women across the world, Um so, so that's so he talks about all of those things in Declaration, and so I want to talk about all of those things here as well. So let's talk a little bit about it. 
first, let's talk about the fact that I don't feel like it's wild for me to say women are equal (laughs) or they should be, but they aren't in the minds of a lot of men and women as well who, you know, have internalized misogyny. uh, There is a marked difference, you know, in how women are treated, how women are perceived um, and how men are perceived. And usually it is with men being at the top of whatever hierarchy. I believe in the deconstruction of all hierarchies, but let's just talk about this one. <laughs> let's just talk about this one uh, because I think the gender gap should be destroyed. Mm. Do away with it. Do away with it. I don't think it's serving anyone. And um, yeah, I don't think it's serving anyone, even the men who might be served by misogyny and a higher position, you know, in terms of the hierarchy, are also at the same time done a disservice. Because the truth is that we are all equal, but also when you start internalizing that misogyny, you strip yourself of being able to know and learn and increase your perspective uh, due to your own biases. And you also, in attempting to trap women in a box, you trap men in a box as well that you might feel a need to break out of. Like there are negative stereotypes for women that you seek to enforce, but in seeking to enforce them, there are also negative stereotypes for men and negative gender norms that can um, adversely affect men as well. So there's that. Let's also talk about birth and contraceptives and the fact that uh women often bear the brunt of both of those things right men and the powers that be are really worried across the globe europe specifically europe europe particularly about declining birth rates right and they want you to have children very badly (laughs) they want women to have children because we're the only ones that can right let's let's get that out of the way the only ones that can they want women to have babies so badly but the infrastructure for women to have babies makes it so that there is almost no incentive to do so right there's no incentive because your career is going to suffer your money your income is going to suffer your body your health is going to suffer depending on you know the um just birth in general is difficult, but then you think about if your country of origin has sufficient health care, um, if they have sufficient support, like maternal leave, paternal leave, if there's an option for your children to be taken care of, public schooling, is that good? Can they have a tutor? You know, <laughs> all kinds of things. And women are often bearing the brunt of it. And so um, in this way, like I said before, these strict gender norms and this gender discrimination harms both men and women because the powers that be are like please have a baby but because they have made it so hard for women to have babies women say no (laughs) they say no I don't want to have a I don't want to have kids because it, it does not serve me at all it does not serve me at all and it's it's come back to bite you all of these provisions all of these archaic and old and traditional and uh ancient and all kinds of out of date all out of touch provisions that have been enforced before make it so that 
the modern woman doesn't want to have kids and she doesn't want to deal with it. So, yes, it's hard to be a woman. It's hard to have children. It's hard to have reproductive organs in general, like with endometriosis. There is a startling deficiency in terms of research and healthcare um, support in terms of that as well. So for some women, it's just a pain and a half just to have a uterus, just to have one. And then on top of that, you face every day, <laughs> you face every day with men who say, you know, you're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not as smart as them. You're not as strong as them. You're not, you're, you know, you're not as much as them. You're not equal to them. Boo. Boo, you suck. <laughs> you suck. So there's definitely political things that I think the world can do to make it so that this uh, discrepancy is not as large, including fixing the wage gap, because there is a wage gap. Oh, God. Fixing the wage gap, um, you know, increasing uh, the like protections for like women in the workforce in terms of like sexual harassment, in terms of maternal leave pregnancy leave stuff like that a lot of times women risk their career you know to have babies like if you're a professor in the united states uh who is not not tenured um and you want to have children that is often at the um at the detriment to the detriment of your career um and there are plenty of other careers in which that is the same like if you take those nine months or six months even right to attempt to have your baby then, you know, that six months is detrimental and you will never be considered for, you know, promotion or whatever. You're not as hard or you're perceived as not being as hard of a worker as your male counterparts who are probably their wives can have a baby. They can have a baby because they don't have the baby. Right. If you get what I'm saying, they can have as many babies as they want because they are not producing the babies. It doesn't hurt their it doesn't hurt their career. It's wrong. Anyway, so those are some of the political steps you can take to solve that. But then there's also the societal societal thinking and how to open people's minds, you know, to these more modern ways of viewing uh, gender. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I think it's all about information. I think it's all about socialization because... Um, even like in school, like, uh, boys are not misogynist by nature. It's something that they're socialized to be. It's something that they're taught as they grow up. So increasing knowledge and increasing, you know, uh, awareness throughout like media and then also in educational wise and encouraging, um, encouraging the meetings of minds across gender can help. Because, you know, a five-year-old boy is not thinking I'm better than women, but by the time they're like 15, they might be. And so that time in between, making sure that they're socialized to continue to view women as equals. Um, so that's what I want to say about feminism. Now we'll move on to the final topic, and that is wealth inequality. And I said earlier that this might be a little bit of a reach, but I also don't think it's a reach because there's some, there's at least some, you know, um, economic commentary um, within this album. And I think in Sante, he talks about those workers who are employed in jobs that are kind of thankless, 
or are working so hard that they don't have time to celebrate themselves. So that's, you know, commentary on the labor force, the working class. Uh, and also in Rie, where he's talking about the person who wants for these huge, fabulous fan, fame and wealth um, versus the person who wants for themselves to have like a warm place to sleep at night. That is a commentary on inequality as well. So let's talk a little bit more about inequality, wealth inequality. So wealth inequality and income inequality are at all-time highs in developed countries. Um, you know, in the United States, within Europe, we see a wealth gap forming at crazy rates. <laughs> at crazy rates. And, um, and so... You know, the rich are just becoming richer and richer. And I feel personally that that is unethical. I do believe that, uh, you know, billionaires should not exist um, because if you become a billionaire, that means that in some way you are um, exploiting the labor of others. Right. There is value, but I feel that it is unethically being distributed, distributed you know, if the person at the top is making billions and the person at the bottom of the corporation is making barely enough to survive, that is unethical to me, right? It 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 just is. It just it it just is. It just is. <laughs> so I think that there is a place for the redistribution of said wealth on a small scale redistribution within companies, but on a larger scale, redistribution within countries, you know, through taxation uh, and public services and things like that. Um, so there's that. I also think it's interesting because it kind of, uh, the song, the song Korea kind of, um, kind of illustrates the hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and it's one of like the best known theories of motivation, according to Google and everything. But it's the idea that if you don't have your base needs met, then you cannot want for anything else except for like your base needs. And once you have those met, you can go to the next level of, you know, <laughs> of uh, needs and desires um, in terms of like you can go to the like next level of needs and desires after having had your have had your base needs met. Um, go look into it. But I think that Rie does a good job of illustrating that because the person, the last person to speak um, is talking about how they really would like to have a warm place to sleep in and to be able to eat their fill every day and not go to bed hungry, right? And so they cannot dream of more than having that because their base needs aren't being met. And then the next level, maybe their base needs have been met. They have, you know, a regular house, but what they're dreaming of is a family, and they're dreaming of, um, you know, a sense of belonging. They're dreaming of their the bicycle and the community and everything like that. And then you go up the next level. They have all of those things, but what they would really like is free time, you know, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, and it just it just builds and builds as you get more of your needs met. But when you don't have any of your needs met, that means that you cannot dream of having more. And I believe that a startling amount of people are in this are in this this uh, lower level of this hierarchy of needs in which they cannot even think about, you know, ideal, ideally what they would like, like ideal conditions 
for themselves, they can only think, I really would love to be able to eat every day. Um, and the gap in between the, those is really absurd and unethical because I do believe that there is a space for everyone to have their base needs met. Um, and it's a commentary, a discussion, you know, of if our current system is good. People are really attached to capitalism, of course, because there's a long history of it across the world. Um, but I think we're moving into a place societally where we start to question if the systems that are currently in place are serving us. Um, and I feel that the answer, especially with capitalism, is going to be no, it's not serving us. A startling amount of people across the globe are experiencing poverty, are not sure where their next meal is going to come from, all kinds of things. And I think there's a way, because we've seen it, right, for people, everyone to have their base needs met. Like if there's a billionaire in the world, that means that <laughs> that means that it's possible to produce wealth enough that everybody gets their needs met. Everybody gets their needs met. So politically, I believe, you know, a solution lies in um, better regulatory systems in terms of like finances and everything like that. Increased taxations for the world's richest. Um, and I guess I will only talk about, <laughs> about my country, but I think across the world, like there should be um, you know, increased taxation or whatever kind of financial oversight necessary to make it such that people aren't experiencing these gross levels of wealth uh, while others suffer. Um, so that's politically. Socially, I think more and more people are getting attuned to the fact that it's not serving them. Um you know, as you as as you see more about the levels of difference in between like the world's poorest and the world's richest, it becomes grosser and grosser. And so I think um, really showing that difference and incre increased information across society about what it means for somebody to be a billionaire, you know, in comparison to you who might be like an Amazon worker, you'll just get you'll just get <laughs> further and further um further and further or more and more disillusioned, more and more disillusioned with the systems that be. So just, just think about it. Just think about it. <laughs> if you've made it this far, congratulations. You've made it to the end of the Music Is More podcast. Today we have talked about a myriad of things all under the umbrella of like political and social issues across Europe and across the globe. And I've talked to you a little bit about that, along with a talk about Stromae's newest album, Multitude. I hope you've enjoyed it because I've enjoyed, you know, going off on my tangents and talking to you about this awesome music. Um, and I hope you come and find us next week with our newest episode. If you want to continue the conversation, feel free to tweet us at Music Is More Pod on Twitter. We're also on Instagram at underscore Music Is More underscore. And we're on Tumblr because Tumblr's coming back at Music Is More Podcast. So come and find us. Come discuss with us. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Add it to your library, whatever you want to do. Um, and I'll see you next week. Bye.